Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Almost everywhere in the world, liberal democracy is, if not under siege, at least being tested. In few previous times have would-be autocrats found such fertile ground. But why? The world's, and yes, America's standard of living is rising. Overall, as Steven Pinker has pointed out, crime and violence is down. The census tells us that diversity is naturally occurring and technology has made life easier. While we are not perfect, the arc of history is bending towards justice. And yet we're angrier, more frustrated, and more willing to buy snake oil than ever before. We're quick to cast blame, quick to believe anything that fits our preconceived narrative, and each side has its boogeymen and straw men. But what if the answer to these problems is not out there? What if Cassius was right, that the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Tom Nichols. He's a professor of national security at the U.S. Naval War College. He's a columnist for USA Today and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of the previous book, The Death of Expertise. He's a former aide to the U.S. Senate and has been a fellow at the International Security Program at the JFK School of Government at Harvard. And I should point out, he has a very active presence on Twitter. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Nichols here to talk about his new book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Have we gotten to a point where the reality of of life today is that it really has put a kind of sell-by date on democracy? Well, I think you have to go back and start about 40 years ago um, because the real pandemic is, I mean, we're living through a biological pandemic, but we've had a kind of a psychological pandemic of narcissism um, since about the early 70s. And this has inflated our sense of entitlement, our sense of grievance, our uh, need to constantly be performative in public spaces. Um, And some of that was kept in check by things like the Cold War and by things like resource stringency and the energy crisis and the terrible economic times of the 1970s, which, of course, are now completely forgotten uh, in the midst of history. Um, But after about 1990, this growth of narcissism, along with the end of the Cold War, along with a prolonged period of peace and affluence uh, and really rapid, rapid uh, rise in living standards, I think convinced us that somehow any of our unmet needs, any, you know, anything that makes us feel bad, any um, uh, difficulty or real harm that might come to us is not just a part of life, but it's actually a failure of democracy. It's a failure of our system of government. And we now spend <clears throat> an inordinate amount of time scapegoating each other and blaming each other for things that, um, you know, th- that are basically sometimes our own fault, sometimes the fault of others. But um, we, we, I think we've, it's caused us to lose faith in the idea that we can solve problems as members of a democracy. And yet, in so many ways, we're, we're fighting the same battles that, that led, that arguably led to this culture of narcissism. The things, for example, that Christopher Lash talked about in, in, in his book about narcissism back in the late 70s were, you know, the, the revolutions of the 60s, the kind of spiritualism of the 70s. All of those cultural battles still seem to be with us today. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it, and it, there is, I actually talk about Lash in the book and, you know, point out how prescient he was. Um, but a lot of the things Lash warned about got put on steroids um, after about 1990, um, when there was no longer an alternative model in the world challenging democracy. I think that reduced people's sense of a common purpose or a common threat. Um, again, with rising living standards and and, you know, I talk about this for a chapter in the book with the rise of the 24 hour news cycle and social media, where um, we now are completely unrestrainable in our ability to yell at each other and criticize each other and to engage in our own kind of performative uh, foolishness. And, you know, again, I, I will step forward and say I'm part of the problem. I mean, I have a really large Twitter account. Um, I use social media regularly, uh, but a lot of these things that were percolating throughout the 70s and into the 80s um, really became unleashed somewhere, I would argue, in the early 90s uh, for a variety of reasons and, and now have become global and uh, like a wildfire burning out of control. It does seem like these things have become a feature rather than a bug in that the whole fundamental idea of democracy is based upon, essentially based on public opinion. And given the nature of how we shape public opinion today because of social media and the things you're talking about, there's no way for the two things not to be conflated, obviously, in a negative way. Right. And I think one of the problems with this wave of illiberal populism, which isn't just afflicting us here in the United States, I mean, it's swept through uh, Italy, um, the UK, Poland, Hungary, Turkey, uh, is that it, it does conflate public opinion and public passion with democracy. And one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that liberal democracy, small l liberal democracy, is not based on opinion. It's not someone's opinion about whether you have human rights. It's not someone's opinion on whether you get to vote. It's not someone's opinion on you know, whether you have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and that part of the reason we institute constitutional government is so that basic rights and basic ideas of democracy and liberty are not subject to public opinion. But again, I would argue that it's part of this narcissistic sense of entitlement that says, hey, if 51% of us want something, it has to be right. And therefore, if, you know, if enough of us yell loudly enough, we should get what we want, um, even if it's wrong. And you see this uh, and, I'll, and I'll stop here, but uh, you'll see this when people say, we're, we're not sending our, our representatives to Washington to do what they think is right. We're sending them to do what we're yelling at them to do. That is completely the opposite of representative government in a democratic republic like ours. Um, if that were the case, then we could just all gather you know, in the middle of the country uh, 300 million at a time and vote on the budget every year. And we don't do that. Very few countries do. In fact, you know, only a handful of countries have direct democracy. And I think people have really come to misunderstand that democracy is not just a matter of who gets together and yells the loudest, that there are just some things that are, that are um, protected by constitutional guardrails and principles that are not amenable to, to flat you know, declarations of public opinion. And yet this seems to grow out of some of the things you've talked about in the death of expertise, for example. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, part of the reason I wrote Our Own Worst Enemy is that this problem of, of democracy was always kind of lurking under the, the unwillingness of people to admit the limitations on their own knowledge or to become more informed about governing 
their own country. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was um, doing book talks about the death of expertise is how many people would eventually ask, they'd say, okay, that's all very interesting, professor, you know, and you're a professor and professors like it when people read books and know stuff. But what about, what does this say about democracy? And I would find myself kind of, you know, rubbing my forehead and saying, well, nothing good. Um, you know, you can't, and I, and I just found myself saying, you cannot sustain a democracy on willful ignorance. You just can't. Um, you can't make healthcare policy in a country where a third of the people, uh, roughly a third of the people want to abolish Obamacare, but keep the Affordable Care Act because they don't know that those are both the same thing. That is, that is actually a true problem that there are people, millions of people in this country don't know that Obamacare and the ACA are actually the same thing. You can't make policy in an environment like that. Right. We've heard people say they don't want the government to get involved with their Social Security. <laughs> right, right. They want the government to keep its hands off their Medicare. Uh, and, and you can't reason with a public like that. And when the public becomes irrational and unreasonable simply because it wants what it wants and it wants it right now, um, what you'll have are politicians who are more and, and political entrepreneurs who are more than willing to pander to that, even when they know better. I mean, one of the things that has really become a striking feature of life in the democracies of the, of the developed West are, are politicians who smirk and say, okay, I'll go up and say stupid things because then I get to go to Washington and I know these things aren't true. Um, there is an episode in the book where I talk about Boris Johnson, who behind closed doors in London says, you know, Brexit isn't a, is a stupid idea. It, nobody knows how to do it. It doesn't make any sense. And then he walks out the door and says, Brexit is the future of, you know, an independent Britain. Um, he knows better. They all know better. But because the public doesn't know better, um, we now do not have democratic representation. We have a class of charlatans who are willing to tell us anything we want to hear. And that's incredibly dangerous. How did we get to this idea of thinking that somehow our grievances should result in a kind of direct democratic participation? I mean, you know, California in some ways was the bellwether of some of that. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to just ascribe this to easy answers about, you know, trophy generations or, you know, spoiled kids or any of that stuff. But, but you really have to go back. I mean, you really have to go back years to understand that we have mutated from a society of stoic and fairly tough adults. I mean, you know, go back to the my dad's generation, you know, World War II, or even the people, the people who went through Vietnam, um, the people who went through the Depression or the, the, the terrible years of the, of the mid-1970s, um, you know, there was a kind of an adult, I mean, it's not to say people were mad and that they didn't, um, you know, have grievances to express, but they expressed them as adults. What's been interesting has been the kind of degradation of the American public and the public in other countries into kind of surly adolescents who think that if government can't solve everything, then government has failed them. And I, I think this is partly a, a, um, a problem of resilience that is created by increasing living standards. Um, you know, it's the, it's the old um, bit about how uh, you, you have totally ignored how cheap it is to fly because you're so angry that the Wi-Fi doesn't work at 30,000 feet. 
Um, and I think that there's a lot of that. Now, I, I know people listening will say, but you know, there are hard times, there are people suffering. That, that's true. Interestingly enough, as I point out in the book, these are not the people who are attacking democracy. The people that are largely attacking democracy in uh, the United States and Italy and Poland and in um, the UK in places in Turkey are actually the middle class. And I think we have a by and large bored and affluent middle class. And as the great writer Eric Hoffer said in 1951, the, you know, the most dangerous time uh, for people um, in a democracy who are faced with a mass movement that could upend the order is the prevalence of widespread and unrelieved boredom. And I think we have kind of brought that on ourselves and, and we don't know quite what to do with ourselves. And that that's a remarkably dangerous thing. And you really see it with the with the January 6th people, you know, the real estate salesmen and the, you know, the the board, um, you know, middle managers who are Instagramming their fun day trying to burn down the Capitol. Um, that's the most extreme version of it. And there's no reason to think, or at least I don't see anything on the horizon, that mitigates that. In fact, just the opposite. Technology keeps making life easier and, and more prone to the kind of boredom you're talking about. Yeah, there's a great line from a British writer who said, the problem with modernity is not that it is too hard, but that it is too easy. Um, and I, I had actually thought, and I said this when I was talking about the death of expertise, and I really believed it about two years ago that when the pandemic began, I said, you know, this is the kind of thing that will snap people out of it. Normally what snaps a, a kind of torpid, bored society out of its um, difficulties is that they have to pull together in, a, in an economic downturn or during a war or a pandemic or some other national trial. And, and in fact, what the pandemic did was reveal just how divided we are. And, and again, our, our incredible sense of entitlement that's like, we developed a vaccine in a year, a, a 90, you know, 98% effective vaccine, and people, are, people won't take it because they want to be demonstrative and performative and show their political colors by saying, you know, um, I, I'm, I don't care, you know, I, I'll be fine because in American life, everything is always fine. Um, it's really, it's really a shocking thing. And you see it in other areas as well. I, I would point out, you know, as we're speaking, um, <clears throat> we're trying to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. And one of the reasons it's been so hard, uh, and I say this, you know, looking at it as a foreign policy analyst, one of the reasons it's been hard to withdraw from Afghanistan is that the American public never wanted to make an adult decision about this. Do we stay and tamp down potential terrorist threats and the terrible things that can happen in Afghanistan, but at a potential cost of long deployments and having our men and women overseas? Or do we come home and accept the, that, you know, we are now out of it and, you know, don't have to be there anymore? And what the public wanted was, we want to be out and we want to be out with no consequences. We want the world to be, there again, a very childlike expression. We want the world to look the way we want it to look, and we don't want any guff about risks or costs or problems uh, or dangers. And you, again, you cannot run a democracy that way. You cannot maintain a, a government on you know, the, the kind of wish casting of angry adolescents. And yet to your point, if, if things like 9-11, the financial crisis in, in, in 2008, and the pandemic have not really turned any of this around, in fact, it has gotten worse, 
What could possibly turn it around at this stage? Well, I, I would love to tell you that I ended the book on a big optimistic orchestral sweep of, you know, with the ode to joy, <laughs> um, but I didn't. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I could tell you that and I'd be lying. Um, you know, but I, I do want to take exception to something here. 9-11 and the pandemic were things beyond our control. And I would, I, I mean, I, I was... 40 when 9-11 happened. And I remember the country pulling together. I remember people even being nicer to each other in traffic. Now I, I live in, you know, I live between uh, Boston and Providence. And for me to say that people are nice about traffic tells you that's a big deal around here. Um, it didn't last, but I did have this sense that, you know, we were in it together. The, the great recession, I mean, a lot of what happened in the great recession, particularly with the housing bubble, and people are not going to like hearing me say this, but we brought a lot of that on ourselves. Um, you know, in the end, we were buying houses that we could not afford. We were getting out on limbs that were, that are unsustainable. In the book, I talk about how we're already seeing the danger signs and red flags with young people taking out seven-year car loans for, for cars they simply cannot afford. And eventually they're going to default and that will ripple through the rest of the economy and, you know, once again, we're going to look at, look at each other and say, well, I guess the government is responsible because they let me take these loans. We, we've really not been willing to, and uh, this does not let Wall Street and all the bankers and all of the wifty financial instruments that were floating around out there, doesn't let any of those people off the hook. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's still on you if you walk into a casino with your mortgage money um, even if the casino is rigged, you shouldn't have walked in there in the first place. And I think we're just not willing to take a hard look at ourselves and to say, what do we want? What do we expect? Do we really understand the limits of government? Do we understand our own responsibilities? Um, I think instead we've just become, again, a society that says, I want what I want, and I want it without a lot of guff from elected officials telling me what things cost or what the, what the risks and problems could be. Do you find it unusual or odd that in all the years this has been going on, and let's use you know your framework of, of the past 40 years, that there hasn't been any real adult supervision, that nobody has come along, either an individual or an institution or anything else, to really attempt to fill that role? Well, you know, we've had politicians over the years of, and I, I will say until recently, politicians of both parties, um, but they have almost always been shouted down. Uh, and I think this really accelerates in the 90s when politics becomes a tribal sport. Um, and now, you know, depending on who you ask, if you ask Republicans, they say this begins somewhere in the late 80s. Um, I think most, most conservatives will um, pin this somewhere around the, the defeat of the nomination of Robert Bork. Uh, liberals, I think, will tell you that this begins with the arrival of Newt Gingrich in Congress with the burn it down uh, mentality. Who, whoever is responsible, the American public rewarded everyone involved for being purely tribal and team oriented about winning. And we increasingly replaced um, um, wonky politicians who knew how to cut deals the kind of boring guys like, you know, Bob Michael uh, or, uh, you know, even Tip O'Neill to some extent, and we replace them with celebrities. Now that 
at the presidential level, that's always been something of a problem, right? I mean, John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, people, people love glamour. They will vote for celebrities. Uh, but but th this started to bleed down into the nationalization of elections. And again, I will say that social media put that on a huge amount of steroids. It's amazing to me to think that people have arguments over, um, you know, uh, say, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or um, – I'm trying to think of a conservative from another from, or, you know, Louis Gohmert in Texas, because in an earlier time, you wouldn't have known who these people were. You voted for your congressman. You didn't vote for your member of Congress based on what was happening in New York 14 or, or Virginia 7 or Texas 6. Um, most people today, I, I'd be willing to bet if you tested most people today, they could tell you who the celebrity members of Congress are and probably can't name their own member of Congress. And, and that 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 happens in the 90s and gets out of and again, it kind of burns out of control uh, through into the into the 2000s. And in so many ways, this performative aspect of politics today has become another way to save the boredom that you were talking about. Absolutely. And that is absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a way of saying, um, you know. I was meant, and you, again, the January 6th people were the extreme version of this, but you, you really have expressed in almost every interview, and I don't just mean on social media. In the book, I talk about um, interviews that were done with ordinary voters and caucus goers and primary voters. Um, you know, you really get this, this sense that people say, you know, I was meant for bigger things than being a, you know, medical records office person. Um, I, I'm going to solve um, you know, the problem of social justice in America. I'm going to solve the problem of um, sexual decadence in America. I'm going to solve, um, you know, wars overseas. Instead of saying, look, I'm, I, I go to work, I take care of my kids, I take care of my family, and, I'm, and I read a newspaper and I know enough about this to know the person that I want representing me in Washington. There has this extremely performative, narcissistic, and grandiose approach to politics among ordinary people that is absolutely poisonous. It's absolutely toxic. Um, and it really defeats the whole point of electing sensible and responsible people to go and negotiate problems on our behalf. Um, and, and I don't, and that's why I think things aren't happening now. It's we, we send people to Washington not to advocate and fight for interests or to come to some, you know, there's nothing wrong with fighting in Congress. George Will has a great line. He says, if you don't like people fighting in Congress, um, then your problem is with James Madison and not with, with anyone else. Um, but but we're, we're sending people there simply to engage in scorched earth and to defeat the other guy so that you can get the emotional charge of, you know, holding up the scalp of your opponents and, and hooting about it. And that's, that's not a democracy. That's just kind of, you know, mobs versus mobs. And eventually... I, what I really worry happens is not that the mob takes over, but that uh, technocrats who, who have to keep the lights on and, you know, keep the roads paved and airplanes in the air simply, I think this is already happening. And this is why I'm a bit pessimistic at the end of the book. I think while all this yelling is going on between all these uninformed mobs, the technocrats say, you know what, we'll just keep things running. And we're just not going to ask the people these questions anymore because we can't get answers that make any sense. So we'll, we'll just run things. 
What responsibility or involvement do you think does the business community have? Because it's another leg on the stool, and in some ways it caters to this, it, it takes economic benefit from this, but uh, in, in, in other ways it seems to be more adult sometimes. Talk about that. Well, you know, the problem is that consumerism is one of the parts of this whole problem. And again, rampant consumerism that I think begins in the 60s with the permanent institutionalization of a youth culture uh, and marketing to a youth culture, even when those youths are 70 years old, um, you know, we've, we've developed a kind of permanent consumerism that says, I want really great stuff and I want it really cheap. Well, at some point, and I had this argument with friends, I come from a you know, I think people should know, I don't come from an affluent background. I come from a working class factory town. My dad worked in a chemical plant. Um, my parents were not educated people. But, you know, when these, when these changes in the international economy, um, including globalization, including offshoring, started to happen, I had arguments with people back home. And I said, look, we can make color TVs in America, but you're going to have to pay more money for them because American workers need much higher wages. And they need healthcare. And people would say to me, I'm not paying that. Businesses should take less profit. But of course, these are the same people who say, but if that hurts the economy or it hurts my retirement account, I don't want them to do that either. Um, and so, you know, as we became primarily, um, you know, heavily tilting toward an investor society, um, you know, people said businesses should do whatever pumps the price of the stock up in the short term. And I think that's another problem with business and where business has to own some of its, its problems because business, American business is all about short-term thinking. It's all about surviving the next quarter, um, keeping the stock price high. But I'm going to keep pointing out that the American people are getting exactly what they've demanded, which is a lot of junk cheap. Um, and they, you know, they don't want to be told that, you know, maybe you don't need three. Tele the average American home has three between two and three televisions in it. Um, when I was a kid, right. maybe when you were a kid, Jeff, right. um, you know, that was a sign of that. Two televisions was rich. People had two televisions. Um, three televisions was was just, you know, overkill. And that's not in addition. I mean, that that add to that the computer screens and smartphone screens. If you count the number of screens per household in an American home, you're, you're starting to get up to six or seven. And, you know, you, you simply can't maintain that um, without finding, you know, super cheap labor and super cheap parts all around the world to make that happen. And people have come to expect it, but they don't want to know about the costs and they don't want to know about, you know, why that's not being made in their hometown. Well, because you can't make it in your hometown. And, and if you're unhappy about it, well, you're in some sense, you're getting exactly what you wanted. Is there any place in the world that is trying harder than we are to get this right, even if not totally successful? Um, I, I think there are places I, I point out, you know, the sort of placid democracies that seem to be doing better in the short term. Um, I, I think mostly those are federal systems like ours. Um, I think centralized systems are like France or Poland or Turkey, um, you know, with strong executives tend to be whipsawed a little more easily. Um, I, I guess I could point to Canada and Switzerland, but even in Switzerland, and I say, I point this out in the book, 
um, this when I when I was in Switzerland talking about kind of democracy and public information and mass movements, um, there were Swiss because Swiss Switzerland is a direct democracy. They literally do get together every year and do things like vote on the budget. And there were Swiss um, academics and journalists who were saying, we're not sure we can keep doing this because our public is becoming less informed, less civic less cooperative, less willing to negotiate with each other. And, and again, I think that if you, um, rather than point the finger at any one country, I think you have to think about, you know, how do you maintain the rapid rise of living standards without it leading people to say, um, if I don't get what I want, my government has failed me. And um, I, even in places that I point to that I think are probably doing it better than we are, um, they're they're worried. They're they're a little concerned. I mean, Canada has a very, um, you know, has its own nutty right wing movement. The, the Swiss are doubting whether they can keep having national referenda on basic issues. Um, you know, there are other parts of Europe. I think one up. I, I don't want to be like completely negative. I think the other thing that's interesting is that the populist wave seems to have crested and is already receding at least for now, in places like Italy and France and the UK, not so much in Poland or Hungary, because one thing that defeats these movements is that populists are really good at gaining power, and then they really, really suck at governing. They're just not good at running governments. Uh, and that, that, you know, people kind of come to their senses when they say, wow, stuff doesn't work anymore. Um, and so maybe that'll, that, that might be an optimistic, um, part of this, but, um, I would argue that's the most optimistic that this is kind of like adolescence, a phase that we're going through and that it will burn itself out. It seems to be, that's the most optimistic way one can come away from this. Yeah. I want to believe that. And I think at some, somewhere in my heart, I do believe it because I think democracy is the, is the natural condition of a human being. I don't think any of us really want to get up in the morning and be harangued by some, you know, crazy, um, you know, um, charismatic leader telling us how we should think and who we should marry and where we can go and all that stuff. What my concern is, is if we burn down a lot of the foundations of democracy while this phase kind of rages out of control, um, it's very hard to put them back. And, you know, it, it could, it, I, mean, I, I worry about kind of uh, entering a dark age um, where democracy is just completely on the ropes for years. And I, I think it's important to point out there are other countries in the world that would be more than happy to see that happen and to take advantage of it while we are completely, you know, wrapped up in our own um, problems. And, you know, when I say other countries, I, of course, mean Russia and China and Iran and the other authoritarian states um, in the world. And if people want a kind of sneak preview of what that looks like, it's important to remember that the last time we went through a real free fall like this, it was in the mid-1970s. We were defeated in Vietnam. Our economy was at a standstill. Um, we had an economic embargo on energy that had us gripped by the throat. We were all kind of mad at each other. Um, we were starting to go to discos, which is always a you know warning <laughs> sign. Um, and uh, and you know our our opponents in the world really took advantage of that and expanded their power 
And, um, you know, the, I think for those of us who study the Cold War, we look back at the late 1970s as a real as a near miss, that that was a pretty dangerous time um, where, you know, things could have gone one of many ways uh, and, and not all of them good for us. Um, and because we really lost our sense of national will, our sense of national purpose. People people forget that, you know, Gerald Ford had to go to Brussels in 1975 and basically plead with NATO to stay together. Um, you know, that, that we had totally kind of almost ceased to function as a unitary country um, because we were sitting in gasoline. I tell students about gasoline lines and they don't believe me. I tell younger students about that. I, and I tell them how I had to sit, you know, and get gas on a certain day because of my license plate. And they kind of give me that, they give me that look that says, well, you're a professor and you can't, you're not, you're actually not allowed to lie to us, but we're, we're kind of not buying that, you know, like it couldn't have happened. Um, so, you know, I'm worried that we're in that kind of social uh, freefall. And yet the one thing that isn't happening to us is our economy, even after a pandemic is stronger than it was in the 1970s. Um, in, in, you know, the indicators that people really care about. I mean, I graduated from high school when there was like 10% unemployment and people forget that. So I, I maybe we'll come out of it, but um, there could be some dark times ahead. But maybe we'll come out of it finally differently, that, that the genie can't be put back in the bottle, that to your point, that some of these institutions, even if this is a phase, some of these institutions may get burned down, may get torched in such a way that, that all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again, and that we should be thinking about what comes after kind of the, the Madisonian democracy we talked about, because maybe there is something after that adapts to this strange, crazy world we've been talking about. Well, I, I push back on that because I think, you know, principles of liberty and justice that have guided us, even when we haven't observed them, even when we have been imperfect or, or sinful in our own ignorance or uh, avoiding of those principles, um, you know, have guided us as a, I think, as a lighthouse in the dark for 250 years. I mean, once you, once you say that human beings have inalienable rights there's nowhere else to go. You can't scale that back and say, well, humans have some inalienable rights and the rest we're going to give back to governments. Um, I, I mean, I'm not so much worried about the structures of government. I, I talk about this in the book where I said, look, you know, there's nothing sacred about 50 states or the size of the House of Representatives that hasn't been enlarged since 1913. Um, you know, we should definitely make those changes. We need to expand the size of the Senate um, because we're, we're, at the, we're at the point where we're basically giving votes to empty real estate now. Um, you know, that, those are all reforms that can be undertaken. I worry about burning down the fundamentals, the basics that say, you know, democracy is democracy unless it's an outcome we don't like. And then we can have a national plebiscite, um, you know, like Britain did with Brexit, right? Well, let's, let's decide things by just everybody, you know, tying one on one night and, and seeing what happens. And if it's 5149, we change the destiny of the country overnight. I, I am innately small fee conservative about that. I don't trust public opinion. I don't trust sudden mass populist movements. I think constitutional democracy exists to exactly to prevent us from doing those kinds of things and forcing us to think and reason and deliberate beyond our immediate emotional upswing. So I, 
I, I take your point that sure we can change. I mean, you know, we're not the same government we were in 1870, you know, after the civil war, we're not the same government we were in 1920 when women finally could vote. Uh, but the idea that somehow we will no longer be a constitutional Republic with certain, you know, guidelines about human rights and freedom and voting. I, I, I don't want to change those things. And I, and I hope we don't. Tom Nichols, his book is Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Tom, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.